UNLV takes on SMU tonight. That game uh, tips off at 5 o'clock. You can listen to it right here on ESPN Las Vegas. And then on Saturday, they will take on San Francisco. And joining us now, the head coach of San Francisco, Todd Golden. Good morning, Todd. How are you today? Good morning, my man. I appreciate you guys having me on. Yes, of course. So, the important thing here as to why we wanted to talk to Todd Golden, aside from UNLV playing San Francisco in a few days, is... A couple of years ago, you made some news by having your team foul while winning games. You guys did it at the end of a game to BYU. You guys did it. It was at the end of the first half. Was it against Pacific? I think it was. Um, and I'm just, yep. it's something yep. that like, I loved very much the idea. And I, I've, I've heard your explanations about it and expected points per possession. And, you know, guy's not a good free throw shooter. It's a one and one. You put him on the line, get the extra possession and everything. So, I'm curious. Well, first off, have you guys done that this year? Excuse me. I haven't watched uh, San Francisco yet this season, but have you guys had any intentional fouling in weird spots this year? We, we haven't. We got close. Um, we got close actually against Towson last week in our first game in Vegas. There was a situation where it was like pretty borderline in regards to whether it was a good idea or not. And the reality was we were playing pretty well. Um, so it was it was kind of a close call. We ended up not deciding to execute it, but there haven't been any where it's like you know a clear cut situation where it makes total sense. Um, but I'm excited for the first time that that pops up. I'll tell you that. So okay, get, can you walk me through like during a game? Because I imagine there's conversations before the game about hey, this is a guy that we might want to foul in that type of situation. But like during the game, you say you guys are playing well. It wasn't a clear cut decision. Like what determines hey? This is a clear-cut decision. We need to do something that most people would look at as weird and foul in a weird spot. Yeah, I think, you know, in that type of situation, uh, and I'll, I'll just reference the Towson game because that was the one that makes the most sense. You know, the the value was was incredibly small in regards to taking the foul in that situation. I think it would have only changed um, the expected points per of that in possession in particular by like point zero zero five. Right. So like it really at the end of the day, like, is that moving the needle? Maybe probably not. Uh, and I felt like it, it instead of just giving them another opportunity to score, they were really having trouble scoring, period, uh, that it didn't make sense to just try to steal that extra moment in that time. But, you know, if there's a situation uh, going back to that Pacific game where their point guard in that moment was shooting like 27 percent from the line in that one in one situation, it made complete sense. There was over, you know, almost a half a point, maybe even like a three fourths of a point value there where it would have been silly to leave that on the table. So uh, it's kind of like a moving scale. Coach Jonathan Sapphire, one of my assistants and I generally have a pretty transparent conversation throughout the course of the game uh, when those situations might arise. And that's where that, in that situation was just not, it didn't move the needle enough to kind of jolt it. So, okay. When you say it was a point zero zero five expected point swing there, do you have that number on the bench as you're making that decision? Yeah, uh, I, I don't particularly like coach Jonathan Sapphire will. And, and to your point, like we've, we talk about this all the time, right? So like going into the game, we have a pretty good understanding in certain situations, what we want to do. Um, but in that situation, I think the shooter was like a 68% foul shooter that we were looking at and nobody else was, was much below that or above that. Um, so there wasn't that, that obvious opportunity uh, in some games, you know, you have teams that have guys that are shooting under 50% where it makes total sense. So it, it is, it's a tiny kind of sliding scale. Um, and we, we generally will, will make that decision before going into the game. 
Um, but in those really, really tight ones, sometimes there is a little feel involved. Have you had other coaches sort of reach out and ask you about that sort of philosophy of fouling while leading because of the expected points per possession? Definitely talked about it with, uh, with quite a few people. Um, but it, it's, it definitely is a comfort thing. It's one of those things like a lot of people understand it but still don't feel comfortable because at the end of the day, in the heat of the moment, they, they can't wrap their arms around potentially sending somebody to the line. You know, it's just like it's a, it's a foreign concept for some people. Like, hey, why am I going to give this team an opportunity to score points? But, uh, you know, like we, like we said, we determined this a long time ago. We know that added possession for us makes a lot of sense. But it's a, it's a comfort thing. You really have to understand and, and know what you're getting yourself into. And, and some people, uh, just like with our hustle stats that we do at practice, they want to learn about it. But learning about it and implementing it are two completely different things. Okay, has there been a suggestion of something weird you guys should do to try to gain that advantage that you've said, well, that sounds ridiculous and you don't feel comfortable doing it? <laughs> not not really, because I, I think one thing that we try to do um, is, is look at all these situations from all the outside-the-box viewpoints, because that's how you're going to gain an advantage, right? If you're going to try to look at every situation the same way that you know all the 353 other Division One coaches are looking at it, uh, you're not going to find much value, but there, I mean, there's definitely some things, uh, whether it's extending it at trying to get like three for twos at the end of the half instead of two for ones, you know, something like that. Um, that's a little more out of your control, but we'll, we'll look at all these different crazy things to see if there's something that we can gain a little bit of an advantage from. Do you feel like what, like what percentage of college basketball teams actually try to take advantage of a two for one opportunity? Cause it seems so low compared to the NBA. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's I think it's really low, and part of it might be because there's only really, you know, well, there's two opportunities at the end of the second half as well, but at the end of the first half is really the best opportunity to do it. And, uh, you know, sometimes coaches just don't feel comfortable rushing a shot on the front end, uh, what they might consider not a great shot, just to gain that two-for-one. But we know and understand, and this is from straight from Daryl Morey, the general manager uh, of the 76ers in our press, you know, uh, two bad shots is is much better than one great shot, and, and there's just no way around that. So um, we will always, always, always try to get that two-for-one, regardless of how much time is. Even if we're flying the ball up the floor on the front end and shooting a long three, you know, three seconds into the shot clock, just to gain that second possession because that there's just, you know, the value that you can't get otherwise. So – one of the big comparisons that I would make from from this in college basketball is in college football and in the NFL, coaches deciding to go for it on fourth and short. There's a ton of like win probability models that say, hey, you, more often than not, you should be going for it on, you know, fourth and one, fourth and two, especially near midfield. And we're seeing more of that in the NFL, but there's still a lot of hesitancy from coaches. And I think it goes back to sort of what you said, the idea of you can understand it, but not really wanting to do it when the pressure's on or when the moment's there because of whatever old mindset or old traditions we have. Right. I guess like, right. How, how much do you view that? Maybe it, it coaching in general, but just in college basketball or basketball as a whole, just the sort of like, Hey, yes, this is the way it's always been done, but I'm sitting here telling you like the numbers say you should be going forward on fourth and shorter. You should be fouling this guy. You should be trying to get that two for one. Like, why do you think there is that block for coaches in so many sports to do something different like that? I think you referenced it. I think, you know, the, the sports have been played 
um, similarly for a long time, and it, and it hasn't really been in, until the last decade or so, maybe a little longer than that, when you know analytics have become more of a part of sport. Uh, and you know, I think for for the younger generation of coaches, we've kind of grown up inside this environment where you know, for me as a player at St. Mary's, it was starting to come around. Then in my couple years professionally, uh, my first couple years of coaches, it really started coaching. It really started taking off. Um, and a lot of the, the best coaches are, are guys that are veteran guys that have been around for a long time, right? If you win, you stick around. So they've, they've gotten comfortable in, in the way that they like to coach and execute. And I think for, for my generation, it'll be different in the way we like to coach and execute. And I think you do. You see it in college and, and NFL football all the time. Um, you know, the Sean well, – and I don't know if McVay has gone for it as much this year as he has in the past, but some coaches look at those fourth and short opportunities – as like an automatic go for it. Like it's, it, it's not even, uh, it, it doesn't, it can't cross their mind. Why am I going to give up the football? You know, when I'm 50 yards away from potentially scoring a tud or, you know, maybe 15 yards away from adding three points uh, instead of sacrificing and giving it to the other team. Uh, you know, I think it's just the way it's the preconceived notion. It's uh, it's the way the sport has been uh, coached for, for a long, long time. And just like anything, whether it's technology, it's that disruption uh, and the success of that disruption, that's going to lead to people doing it more and more. All right. I got to know, when you watch a basketball game, like what's a common phrase or narrative from announcers that you hear and you're like, no, that's that's not true. That's not right. And it bothers you. Oh, there's, <laughs> it's great. Uh, you know, like there's uh, there's a one I was watching the other day, uh, watching the Syracuse, you know, somebody it wasn't it was the game after I guess it was last night, uh, Indiana, Syracuse. And. Indiana threw the ball uh, into the middle of the zone against Syracuse and race Thompson hit a tough, like kind of mid range fadeaway jumper. And one of the announcers was like, Oh, that it's that simple. It's that simple. You just, you know, you throw it to the middle of the zone and you, you take the jumper and you're done. I'm like, actually, that's exactly what Syracuse like wants you to do for 40 <laughs> minutes. They want you to take contested mid range jumpers for 40 minutes. If you do that against them, you're going to, you're going to lose a lot of games. Um, but like this, just, a lot of times announcers will uh, will reiterate things based on the outcome as opposed to the process. And that, that's if you if you operate like that, you're, you're not going to have as much success as you want. You're going to get misled because sometimes uh, the outcomes aren't aren't great results of the process. And that's why we try to focus on the process and and doing all those things. And we'll let the results, you know, uh, finish where they may. Todd Golden with us, the head coach for San Francisco. I'm I'm curious. So UNLV plays tonight. You guys basically have a whole week off before you play UNLV. So uh, when you watch yeah. UNLV SMU, like as an opposing coach who's about to play UNLV, like what do you look for? Like are you looking at, hey, this is how SMU defends Bryce Hamilton. That worked or didn't work, so we should or shouldn't do that. Like what do you watch for when you watch a team you're about to play? Yeah, it's um, it's honestly like for I I truly enjoy it to be honest. Like I really love trying to dive in and and figure it out. Uh, you know, we want to figure out how to bother and disrupt UNLV for Saturday. We want to we want to kind of get into the teeth of how they play offensively. Obviously, you know, we're looking at how Jordan McCabe's using ball screens and and what he does uh, off those screens when he's comfortable. Uh, how much better is he going right than he is going left? If we trap him, is that going to bother him? If we kind of gap him, let him play inside the three, is that going to bother him? We're looking at a guy like Hamilton as we realize he's the highest usage offensive player on their team. Obviously, they're getting comfortable. Uh, you know, they're running a lot of things through him, and he's taking a lot of shots, and so they're playing off him. How can we bother him? How can we take him out of his comfort zone 
So when he's getting his catches, he's not where he wants to be or he's not getting the direction downhill that he wants to. Uh, and then we're looking at all their other guys and say, hey, you know, like a Roy's hand, what are we going to do to keep this guy off the glass? This guy's a mother. He's flying around. He's a great athlete. He's done a really good job of giving them second chance opportunities on the glass. Uh, do we need to throw a second block out on him? What do we have to do to disrupt his, uh, just his, the way he gets on the boards? And so we'll look at personnel that way. Uh, then we're going to look at how they guard. You know, what are they doing against SMU? How are they disrupting them? Are they trapping? Are they pressuring? Are they gapping? Are they giving up threes? So, you know, we'll, we'll break it down a lot of different ways. Um, you know, I'm super, super close with Carlin Hartman on the staff at UNLV. He's one of my best friends, uh, one of my mentors. So we watch UNLV a lot. We feel like we have a pretty good understanding of, of how they like to play, what they like to do. I thought they, they had some really good efforts last week in Vegas against Wichita State and Michigan. You know, both those teams were uh, top 50 teams, top 25 teams going into the game, and, and they were in both those games start to finish. Uh, so I think UNLV has a pretty high ceiling. You know, they've, they've proven they can play with anybody. Obviously, they didn't play great against UCLA, um, but they have a lot of good players. They have a lot of guys that can do a lot of different things. Their athleticism is something that I'm concerned about, and uh, we're, we're just going to give it everything we got to prepare for these guys so when they come in on Saturday, we feel like we're, uh, we have a chance to be successful. All right, let me end with this question for you. Do you want to see the Elam ending in college basketball? Oh, God! <laughs> I'll be honest, man. I, I, not really. Okay. Uh, I, but I will say this. On, on Friday night against UAB, when we were up like eight with two minutes to go, like I would have been cool with it at that point because <laughs> we almost blew the game in the last two minutes. Um, but I, I do enjoy – kind of coaching the last couple minutes of the game and, and there's a lot of things that go on like I did a bad job on Friday of negotiating the last two minutes of the game like I used to time out a little too early got caught with a bad rotation subwise late and we just kind of hung on for dear life um, but you know so with the Elam ending I feel like that kind of gets evaporated to an extent but uh, man I'm, I'm open to everything that's uh, kind of pushing the game forward and keeping it exciting and, and keeping people engaged and involved so if, uh, if you have a good case for it, then I'm, I'm all ears. Well, okay, let me ask you this. We've seen it in the, the basketball tournament in the summer. The NBA's used it in the All-Star game. If we're 15 years in the future, do you think we get there? Like, do you think at some point college basketball or the NBA actually does adopt the Elam ending? I think we have a chance. You know, I think I think there's, there's definitely a possibility because they're always looking for, uh, you know, different things to keep fans engaged and, and keep the game uh, evolving and, and you look at some things that they've done that have worked out great and you look at some things that they've done that worked out awful so I think they're gonna always look at different things to kind of change the game so to speak and uh, I think it's been relatively successful with the with the TBT you know that that's turned it into a pretty uh, you know a cool variation that they have and a cool ending and you got guys like Fran Fraschilla, who I'm a huge fan of and have a high level of respect for that are that are pushing for it. So I, I think there is a chance for sure. Well, he is Todd Golden, the head coach of San Francisco. Again, UNLV, they played tonight against SMU, but then again on Saturday on the road against San Francisco. Todd, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate you, my man. Take care and uh, we'll see you uh, Saturday. So there is Todd Golden from San Francisco. They are off to an 8-0 and start. Uh, they've got three wins over teams that are currently in the Ken Palm top 100 the WCC is off to a really strong start this year it's not just Gonzaga that's been good that was like listening 
to you talk to a more positive, upbeat version of you. That that I mean, I asked to have Todd Golden on the show specifically for myself. Like that was not a guest booking for the listeners at all. That was just for me. So hey, I have an excuse to ask for Todd Golden. Let's do it. Well, I mean, no, he was he was amazing. It's just it was genuinely like I was like, man, he said the same thing Tyler's been saying, but in a way that was like much more palatable. Yeah, nobody likes that. Come on. Got to have some doom and gloom. Like coming up next, I'll tell you why the Texas Rangers are dumb. Bischoff's briefs. How was the game? Not very good. Have you ever seen a good hockey game? No, me neither. I love sports. I just can't get next to hockey. Bischoff's brief. See, I think Americans like to savor situations. One down, bottom of the ninth. One run game, first and third. Left-handed batter, right-hand reliever. Infield, a double play depth. Here's the pitch. Bischoff's briefs. What's going in hockey? It seems to come out of nowhere. The play-by-play guy is always shocked. Lepetier passes to Huck and Chuck, who skates past the blue line. Huck and Chuck, of course, was traded from Winnipeg for a case of Labatt after sitting out last season with, oh my God, he scores! Bischoff's Briefs. If there's one thing I like as much as numbers in sports, it's tanking. I'm a big fan of tanking. I don't know why people hate on tanking. Tanking is just when it's done right. This isn't like teams that just decide they're not going to try to win at all. Tanking when done right is a team looking at itself and saying, we suck. We're not going to be able to win a title with this roster. We need to blow it up and we need to try to win a title in three years. Tanking is still trying to win. It's just trying to win in the future. Not right now, because right now you look at it and you say, oh, we suck. We can't win right now. I'm a fan of tanking. Teams should be able to look at themselves and say, we suck. We can't win right now. We're going to try to win in five years. That's what teams should be allowed to do. Well, in basketball, it should be like one or two years. But in like baseball, eh, five years. I don't understand what the Texas Rangers are doing. They have like completely ruined what could have been a good rebuild here. So the Texas Rangers haven't been very good for like five years now, but they haven't gone full tear it down rebuild until we thought this sort of last season was the first year of that. And they ended up trading away Joey Gallo at the trade deadline, right? Like that was, that was sort of their franchise player. Hell, he still was under team control for another year or two. He went, they didn't even have to pay him a lot of money. They could have kept him for another year, but they traded him away. Uh, and it was sort of, hey, here's the teardown, and it's going to be a rough couple of years, but in three to four years, eh, maybe the Rangers could be really good. But they've gone about this very backwards this offseason because the Texas Rangers have gone out and they've signed Corey Seager, Marcus Simeon, Cole Calhoun, and John Gray. <laughs> yeah, they one of these spent, things is not like the other. They have spent a whole bunch of money, and they've gotten a really good shortstop a really good second baseman. Marcus Simeon, the last two full seasons, has finished third in AL MVP voting, right? Very good. Corey Seager, also very good. Cole Calhoun is whatever. John Gray... He might legitimately be bad. John Gray is a slightly above average starter. I Maybe we give him the benefit of the doubt because he pitched in Colorado, so maybe he should be a little bit better, but he's an average MLB starter, right? But it's ultimately, they spent money on four players that are all four probably better than all, but maybe one or two players the Rangers had last season. But here's why they've done this backwards. They tear down to rebuild, 
And instead of waiting to hit on some prospects, like some young guys to come up, they're signing the big name free agents now. And they're still going to be bad. Like that's the issue here. They're still not going to be good next season. They're still probably not going to be good in 2023 either. Like it makes very little sense to spend the money now because when you tear everything down, if you do, if you do the rebuild, well, you're going to find good, young, cheap talent, right? That's the objective here. You want high draft picks. You want to trade guys like Joey Gallo for prospects that could be good, young, cheap prospects, but you need those guys to work out. The Rangers have a lot of prospects. They're going to have high draft pick in the next draft and probably in the next two after that as well. But you need those guys to work out because oftentimes your prospects don't end up working out. They don't end up being above average MLB players, right? But you need a couple of those to actually be star players. Because here's the problem for the Rangers. Last year, the Rangers had one player on their roster post an OPS plus better than 110. The Dodgers, for example, had eight. The Astros had seven. Now that they've added Marcus Simeon and, and uh, Corey Seager to the roster, they're going to have three. That's still a bad lineup. Last year, the Rangers had one starter with an ERA above the M or better than the MLB average. That guy's not on the roster anymore either. With John Gray, they still have one starter that's above average in terms of MLB ERA. They don't have any pitching. So you're looking at a lineup that has three above average hitters, one above average starter. That's a last place team. I mean, the A's might completely tear down and be worse than them, but that's a last place team. And that's what they're going to be next year. What the Rangers needed to do was they needed to find, you know, let's say two starting pitchers that were above average and like three offensive hitters that were above average. And then you go out and get Marcus Simeon and Corey Seager and John Gray. And now, oh, look at that. You've got three starters that are above average and five hitters that are above average. That's still probably not a World Series contender, but hey, at the trade deadline, maybe you go trade for another starter or another bat or something like that. And all of a sudden, yeah, you've got a legitimate shot to make the playoffs and win the World Series. But for some reason, they went and got Simeon and Seager and John Gray, and now you're looking at it saying, okay, well, who the hell pitches besides John Gray? John Gray's not even like a ace or anything like that. And who hits after Nathaniel Lowe was the one guy that was good last year, Marcus Simeon and Corey Seager? Who hits after? They're going to be bad next year. And until they actually hit on some of these prospects, they're still going to be bad because you need to have five good offensive bats, three good starting pitchers to have a chance. And they don't. They don't have that right now. They have one and three. And so until they actually hit on some prospects, they've got no chance. Maybe because they just opened a stadium. They're just like, we need to get fans in this stadium. But baseball attendance doesn't drive their revenue. Like no, it, it, it helps, but it, it's TV deals that drive their revenue and their TV deals already signed. It's not like, cause they have a bad TV rating. They don't get paid. It's already signed. They're getting a television. Deal. Maybe if you told me their television deal was up this year, maybe I'd buy that one. But like, yeah, I'm I on mean, it. Having more revenue helps, but it's not that big of a deal when it comes to baseball revenue. So it's just like they did this backwards. And here's the problem. If the Rangers don't hit on enough prospects here, 
they might miss the playoffs for the entirety of the Marcus Simeon, Corey Seager deals. Like if they do not hit on prospects and they're looking around saying, wow, we got one guy to work out. We got Simeon and Seager. They're just going to keep being bad. They're not going to be as bad. They're going to go from 60 wins to 70 wins, but they're still going to be bad and not make the playoffs. If they don't hit on the prospects, you have to wait on the prospects before you start spending money in free agency or trading for guys. They signed a 20-year TV deal worth $80 million a year in 2010. So they are not coming up on a no, new deal. But apparently they're, the network that broadcasts them is going through a rebrand. Simon and Seeger Sports. Coming up next, Jamison Welch joins the show. Chioza, the porter, he'll circle to the left. Takes a three, no good, missed it. Chioza rebound, out to Curry. Three ball on the way, splash! Joining us now is Jamison Welch. You can follow him on Twitter at the Jamison. Uh, all right, Jamison, did we watch the two best teams in the NBA play last night in the Suns and the Warriors? I think so. I really think so. I, I think that's what we uh, saw last night. I think especially defensively. Uh, both of those teams defensively can really get after it. It makes things very difficult. We saw the Suns being able to make things difficult for Steph Curry. Now, there's some shots he missed. But you can see there was other times where Michael Bridges and other guys made things difficult for him. So it was a fun game. It wasn't that 125-122 game. It was a, a real game with, you know, defensive strategy and back-and-forth leads. It was good. It was a good watch. Is Jordan Poole for real? Like, he's number two on that team in scoring. Like, is, is he a legitimate, can be a legitimate number two option on a team that wins a title? We're about to find out. Uh, you know, that's the thing. <laughs> I, I think we're going to find out closer to the playoffs because in the playoff, things are different. You know, they, they get you off your spot. You got to work a little harder. We're going to see. But he's gotten a lot better from Michigan to now. He's gotten a whole lot better from being a guy that was a late first-round pick that most people thought he'd be a second-round or undrafted guy to now where he's starting. He's, like you said, he's putting up, you know, starter-type production into the point where his extension is a, a conversation piece now. You know, his next contract is a conversation piece now where a year ago you would thought he was just another young guy. So, no, he's been very impressive. He's gotten a lot better. He's a lot more consistent with his jump shot. I think that's the key. Now, the shot selection at times can be questionable, but the jumper has gotten better, and he has been a, a very, very good pick for them. Uh, There's a period of time where the Warriors' picks were kind of shaky uh, because they're always drafting in late first round, and when you are very good, you draft in the late first round, sometimes you – you know, trade your pick. So you're getting second round guys, but he's one of their few uh, draft picks in the last few years that have, you know, as produced. And, you know, that's why the good organizations stay good because those type of things pan out. This isn't necessarily new because we saw this when the Warriors were dominating the NBA for a five year period there. But how surprising is not the right word, but like Draymond Green to be the size he is and still be able to play center and the Warriors still are able to be really good defensively. Like it's crazy how much value that can bring to a team that can then space the floor on the other end because of what Draymond can do as an undersized center. And for him to be moving like this and the condition he's in is amazing because most guys can't do that at this age with the miles he has. It just doesn't work. Uh, but he's dedicated himself to getting in tip-top shape, and it's shown that him and Kevon Looney have been surprises for them because the last couple of years you've seen, like, hey, it's not the same Draymond as the, the championship runs. Like, it's not the same guy. It's a little bit slower, you know, doesn't have the same lift. Now he's uh, attacking the basket on offense. He's finishing better. 
He's actually, you know, trying to finish, you know, trying to finish offensive possession. So there's differences you've seen from this season to the last couple of seasons. And that's, that's impressive. You know, with them though, the key is going to be March and April, you know, right now the season's still young. How do they progress when there's a bunch of miles into this season and he's constantly guarding bigger guys? How does that work? Because the way they're playing now, if Wiseman is able to come back, how are they going to be able to integrate Draymond and Wiseman lineup? Because they kind of do a lot of things similar on the defensive end. It's going to be interesting to see. But if Draymond's going to be the center versus a team like that has an Aiton type guy, it's going to be difficult for the Warriors because Aiton is very good at finishing around the basket and also finishing through contact. So it's going to be very interesting to see how that goes. But no, the Warriors have been very impressive. They've probably been the most impressive team thus far for the expectations people had uh, for them coming into the season. All right. The team that actually won last night was the Phoenix Suns. Uh, Chris Paul, I think his shooting's down a little bit this year, but he's still, he's leading the league in assists this year. Like we've done this before, but he's 36 years old. Like Chris Paul going to keep doing, is he going to keep being this good for a long time? Man, Chris Paul's been this good since he was 15 years old and it has not changed. The key with him is his health. If he can stay healthy, the Suns are going to be right there at the end. Uh, he is that good. He knows his he knows his game. He knows his limitations. The thing with the Suns, they they got a monstrous minutes. They can't play him 35 minutes a night. That's not going to work because whenever that happens, he gets an injury of some sort. You got to keep him around 28 to 30 minutes. If you're able to do that, you're fine because in the playoffs, you may have to go a little bit extra, but you can't ramp him up this early. So as long as they're able to keep him healthy, he'll be okay. That's the key for my eyes is keeping him right. If he's able to be right then they'll be just fine. Uh, but, no, he, he knows his game. He knows the game of basketball. He, in the second half, he controlled the tempo of that game. You know, he was making sure that they got quality possessions, quality looks, making sure Aiton got his touches, making sure guys like Cam Johnson, Michael Bridges, um, Cam Payne, all those guys got open looks. You know, he controlled the pace and the tempo. And to me, that was the most important part of yesterday's game was the second half when Booker wasn't playing. Chris Paul says, you know, I got this. We're going to win this game. This is how we're going to do it. Very few guys in the NBA can do that. Probably less than a handful of guys, I would say, that can literally dictate the tempo of a game, control the whole game, without doing a lot of scoring. A lot of guys can score 25, 30 and a half. That's one thing. But to be able to do that without having a monstrous scoring night is a totally different story. Uh, Julius Randle yesterday said that a ref told him that he doesn't get calls because he's too strong and isn't as affected by, you know, getting slapped or whatever. We've heard that type of thing from Shaq before, but do you believe a ref actually said that to Julius Randle yesterday? Wouldn't be surprised because what happens is this, and when you whatever, and this goes off for all levels, the referees anticipate calling calls. So when there's a play going on and a defender is a certain way and a offensive player is going a certain direction, they anticipate what's going to happen, so they blow the whistle. Uh, and that sometimes is what happens when bad calls are made or calls are missed. Uh, but when it comes to guys like Julius Randle, Giannis, LeBron, like you mentioned, Shaq, there's times where they don't see certain things because they may be at a poor angle or might, the play might just be too fast for them. Sometimes uh, you've obviously had the pleasure of watching basketball at a very close distance, so you're able to see the game going extremely fast. At the pro level, it's even faster than that. So there's times you're going to miss calls. It does happen. These guys are so strong. So you may foul Julius Randle. He may not act out like if you foul a guard like a Harden or a Curry or a Trey Young or someone like that. It's just how it is because they don't have the same reaction. 
and the game is going so, so fast. Uh, at the same time, the way the game is called, especially now, I'm kind of surprised to hear Julius Randle get that same comp that they <laughs> give, like, Braun and Giannis, because that's two totally different situations. Uh, all right. I'm curious on James Harden, because earlier in the year, he was not getting free throws, and obviously there was a new emphasis on what was and was not going to be called for offensive players when they were baiting defensive players or letting guys run into the back of them. But he shot 10 free throws last night. He had a game uh, like two weeks ago where he had 20 free throws. Has James Harden adjusted or did the refs kind of stop the emphasis on what is and is not supposed to be a foul? And so here's the thing. Uh, first of all, Harden has gotten finally out of shape. He had an issue with hamstrings and really couldn't work out during the summer. And he's a guy that's already always had some conditioning sort of issues, as we have talked about on this show many times before. Tricky body. Um, yeah, that's right. He has a tricky body. And there's a few <laughs> guys in the NBA who have that same body. Uh, but with that being said, um, he looks like he's gotten back into shape. He's more aggressive on the offensive end. Uh, but at the same time, he's getting older. You know, and the, the same things he used to do five years ago, he's not able to do as much anymore. Um, getting to the free throw line means you're constantly driving and attacking. That normally guys' free throw attempts go down as they get older. So it's not a surprise that the numbers have gone down. Uh, it takes a lot of energy and effort to continue to drive, continue to go to the hole, and do it all that contact. He's not an uber athlete. He's a really good athlete, but he's not like a Zach Levine type guy. He's not like you no know, crazy off the gym athlete. So those things are going to slow down. It's just to me, so you can't get those random swipe through fouls or those touch fouls anymore. How does he adjust? He's good enough to be able to adjust, and he has enough skills to be okay going forward. Uh, how many guys in the NBA are better in-game dunkers than Anthony Edwards? Ooh, Levine's one of them. Um, Aaron Gordon's definitely one of them for sure. Um, after that, the, the list gets kind of, you know, it gets kind of light because <laughs> Anthony Edwards is different. He plays basketball like a football player that's coordinated. We've all seen <laughs> football players that play basketball, like, you know, shooting around and playing pickup in the gym. And it ain't really there, but he plays like a guy that's been playing both sports and that's very coordinated and knows what he's doing. And his his way of playing is fun. He's a fun watch. It's unfortunate he's in Minnesota, in Minnesota because we really don't get to see him on prime time a whole lot. Uh, for those of us who have the NBA package and NBA TV, we see him a little bit more than, than the average person. But, man, he's a joy to watch. And like you said, in-game dunking, especially when it's a chance to dunk on somebody, man, what he did last week, and when he did to, to the guy in Toronto last year, man, or no, no, this year, I, I apologize. Man, he's different. Like, he's he's a different beast, man. Uh, and he's really good. He can shoot. He's actually a real player. He's actually a shooter. He has handles. He, can, like, he has a lot of potential. I just hope that, you know, either it, it gets figured out in Minnesota or he goes elsewhere. Um, should the NBA institute a rule that if you get dunked on, there cannot be a charge call? In all basketball. All of basketball. <laughs> from junior high on. If you get dunked on, I don't care where you took the charge at. If the dunk gets completed, it's an automatic block and one. I don't care what, <laughs> what part. Of, I don't care if AAU. I don't care if it's church league. Whatever it is, if you get dunked on, it is an and one. And if you complain about getting dunked on and claim out the foul, you get a technical. That's how it should be. <laughs> well, he is Jameson Welch. You can follow him on Twitter at the Jameson. As always, we appreciate it. Not a problem. Thanks for having me, guys. So, yes, uh, Anthony Edwards, uh, I think it was last week, had the dunk, and it was one of the best dunks of the year. It did not count because some defender was standing with his feet planted 
25 feet below Anthony Edwards' head, and they called a charge. It's ridiculous. There should be no... First off, I still hate the idea of there just being charges in basketball. The fact that I can just run to a spot, put my hands over myself, and get run over, and that's considered a good play, it's ridiculous. But we got to somehow get that out of the game. But especially if you get dunked on. That we cannot be taking away highlight reel dunks because somebody stood there covering their junk and got jumped I over. Mean, also, the, why in God's name would you put that out there? Like in the modern in the modern era, you're that's gonna live forever. If you ever like let's say you didn't get your feet set and you still got dunked on, like everyone needs to make that business decision of I don't wanna be an NFT. I don't want to be a gif of like LeBron putting his gentleman's area on my neck. But listen, as the current rules are, it's a good play. <laughs> it was a foul on Anthony Edwards and it wasn't two points. It was a good play. Oh man. So we got to change the rules. So we're not rewarding that. All right, here we go. We've got four tickets to the PAC 12 football title game at Allegiant stadium on Friday. That's this Friday, two days away. Tickets are on sale. Now there's a discounted rate for Vegas locals, but we got four tickets for you right now. 702-364-1100. If you're going to go watch Oregon and Utah in the PAC 12 title game on Friday at Allegiant stadium, we will take caller number 12 at 702-364-1100. That is 702-364-1100. The leadership at OU was was fantastic, communicating with me throughout that process, um, asked feedback. I'm certainly not saying I made the decision by any stretch, but I, I was able to give some feedback and be a part of those discussions. And, and I think it's going to be a great move for OU. I do. And that, that had no part of it. You're locked in the press box. All right. I do have an important update on Lincoln Riley. Uh, we fell for it yesterday. It was not a real reporter that tweeted about USC buying his two houses in Norman, Oklahoma. Oh. Now, if you remember yesterday, uh, it was a guy named Robert Hefner. And I not that I deserve credit because we still talked about it, but I did say I don't know who the hell Robert Hefner is. Uh, Sportico did a story on this, basically saying, no, it's not true because a uh, realtor is... Lincoln Riley's realtor in Oklahoma said, no, their USC is not I, buying his houses. If they did, where's my cut? Yes. <laughs> like if they did, Lincoln's got some explaining to do. But yeah, so it's confirmed that they are not buying his houses. But there's more to the story because Sportico didn't just, you know, debunk that report. They actually were like, all right, so who is Robert Hefner, the guy who tweeted this out and everybody ran with it? Robert Hefner is an Oklahoma City-based energy investor. Oh God! And a scion of prominent oil and gas, uh, a scion of a prominent oil and gas family in the state of oh, Oklahoma. Oh God! I need to read to you the text message that Hefner sent Sportico. <laughs> in all candor, I'm annoyed that so few people care about energy. And so many care about this sports tweet. People will never know how hard I work in energy. (laughs) So not, oh God, this guy has no background in terms of like being a, you know, a reporter or covering Oklahoma or whatever. 
he just tweeted out all these details about Lincoln Riley's contract that were not true. And when they found that, hey, these are not true, and when somebody called him and said, hey, man, why are you making up stuff? His response was, I'm annoyed you people care about that tweet. Why don't you care about energy? Why I work hard. I. Why do you guys keep asking me about the thing I said? Why don't you ask me about something I didn't tweet out? Nobody will know how hard he works in energy. I feel bad for you, Robert Hefner. By the way, one key what detail. Is a, like, by Scion, do you mean like he's the son of a... So, fun fact, a key detail here. Robert Hefner is actually Robert Hefner the fifth. Oh, good God. The fifth. Not junior, not even the third. Robert Hefner the fifth. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and just... And this, this might be... I mean, slander or libelous. I don't know the difference. No way in hell he works hard. Yes, I 100% agree. I am willing to bet Robert Hefner the first owned some land or found some oil. So however the hell that worked 200 years ago. And since then, Robert Hefner the second, Robert Hefner the third, Robert Hefner the fourth, Robert Hefner the fifth. I've had it pretty easy. (laughs) I work hard. I show up at 10 a.m. and I'm out by three. Do you know how many boring meetings I have to sit through? I will say, uh, Robert, that's a name that stood the test of time, hasn't it? Yeah. I mean, especially considered, like, we got Bill as a, like, Bill is dying. Yeah. And Bob is dying. There's a lot of names, like Herb. Yeah. I feel like when Robert Hefner I was finding oil, there was probably a Herb next door finding oil. A Horatio. Yeah, like there's just I'm saying Robert's a name that's that's that stood up well. We were naming people Robert like 200 years ago. Before that, probably too. Well, I mean, wasn't there a like Rob Robert that was involved in the Crusades? So it goes probably. back even further. And so you look around now. If somebody was named Robert, you wouldn't think twice about it. Adolf has died off a yeah, little bit, quite a bit. That one's not worked out very well. But yeah, Robert's a name that stood up. You can legitimately name your kid Robert Hefner V, and nobody's going to think twice about his first name. Or if it was Adolf, you'd be like, yeah, hey, we might need to kill this. We might need to stop it, too. We don't need to go to three on Adolf Hefner V. No, he'd be A. Robert Hefner V. Uh, and by the way, college football remains the most ridiculous sport in this country. It's not the most watched sport, but... The fan bases are insane because we have Oklahoma fans zooming in on the watch of an assistant coach who's out of high school recruiting to find that the time on the watch was not the same or even close to the time of the tweet and trying to accuse somebody of bad recruiting. There is also an assistant coach for Oklahoma who was on Lincoln Riley's staff who was not announced as going to USC that is apparently recruiting for USC because a kid that committed to USC gave a quote saying that that coach, he had talked to him a lot before committing to USC and that coach is still on the staff at Oklahoma and not USC. It's a great sport. I wish UNLV was good at it so we could talk about the most ridiculous things that fan bases and coaches do on a more regular basis, but it's phenomenal. One of the best sports we've ever had. The most ridiculous fan bases who do the most ridiculous things like 
look at watches on pictures.